the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today, the Senate blocked a vote on an anti-infanticide bill. Was it out of ignorance or evil? Bernie Sanders brings out the woke sexist, and episode 51 gives us a look at the split between the old liberals and the new left. I'm Georgie Borman. Welcome to the 180 Cast. Welcome back to the 180 cast. I am your host, Georgie Borman, and this is the podcast dedicated to exploring how people change their minds and bringing some moral and logical clarity out of all of the cultural and political confusion that surrounds us today, especially in this election season. I am so glad to have you with me today. A quick update before we get into the top stories, which we're going to talk about the Born Alive uh, Survivors Infant Protection Act, which was voted down for many people inexplicably by the Democrats. We are going to talk about the situation in Florida with the six-year-old who was arrested. Yes, I know, if you haven't heard about that, it's a crazy, crazy story. We're going to get into that. But before that, I just want to let you know that the Tuesday breakdowns that I have been doing are on hold for now. I have a lot on my plate, and being someone who is home with my kids and never hiring a babysitter or putting them in daycare or anything like that. I'm, I'm, I am a full-time mom and a writer. It was just a little bit too much uh, for me to handle at the moment. I have that tendency of biting off more than I can chew. I'm sure, I'm sure you can relate. So those are on hold for now. Hopefully, eventually, when things calm down a bit and my kids are a little bit more independent, I can do more Tuesday breakdown sessions, or if I have a particularly easy week, maybe I'll just throw one up as a surprise. But that's the situation right now. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the top stories. I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. I don't know what we're yelling about! It will top the list. Okay, so just a couple days ago, uh, the same night as the Democratic debate the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Infant Protection Act was blocked by a, a Senate vote. It, they they voted to move it to a vote, essentially, and they couldn't get the 60 votes. Republicans could not get the 60 votes needed to be a filibuster-proof majority, and so the Democrats threatened to filibuster, and so now the bill is dead again, just as it was this time last year. So here's the deal. We need to get a few things straight. But before we do that, I'm going to play this soundbite from Ben Sass on the floor of the Senate just to sort of set up what we're talking about here. This bill is exclusively about protecting babies that have already been born and are outside the womb. Every baby deserves a fighting chance, whether that 24-week-old baby uh, fighting for air and fighting for life, having just taken her first breaths, is at an abortion clinic where she survived a botched abortion, or whether or not she's in a delivery room at the local hospital. Both of those babies are equally deserving of care, protection, and humane treatment, 
And our laws should treat both of these human beings as babies. Because they're babies, they've been born, and they're outside the womb. This really shouldn't be controversial, Madam President. Okay, so here's the deal. I want you to think on his depiction of the tiny 24-week-old struggling to breathe and who needs medical care. That should make you mad, right? Unless you are on the far, far left, it should make you mad. And so most people look at this, most people who are actually informed on the subject and who are hearing this soundbite from Ben Sass would be like, "That's of course that baby deserves to live. Why not? Why not? It's a baby, right? And it's outside the womb. So Democrats shouldn't have any problem with this. They are only concerned about bodily autonomy. They're only concerned about what happens inside the womb. Magical birth canal, right? Sass says this bill shouldn't, shouldn't, uh, you know, it shouldn't be controversial. He's taking the position that the vast majority of people would take given the same information and having read the bill. So we have a bunch of people, including last year, I remember hearing Ben Shapiro talk about this because I listened to his show from time to time. And this time last year, when the exact same thing happened, he was like, I've been trying all night and all morning trying to figure out why Democrats would vote against this bill. It's a bill against infanticide. How could you vote this down? How could you try to make this about women's health? That's so transparently, obviously a lie. Well, here's the thing. Ben Sass said... This is a baby, right? And it's the same baby if it was in a hospital or if it was born alive after a botched abortion. And so they should be treated the same because biologically, they're both the same. They're both human babies at roughly the same gestational age. And so according to general laws of logic, they should be treated the same. Here's the thing, though. Ben Sass is making a, a huge mistake here, and it's the mistake that most, the vast majority of pro-lifers make. The vast majority of pro-lifers, including Ben Sass, operate off the magical birth canal dogma. In other words, they believe that Democrats believe that there is some sort of mystical property. I mean, it's somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but this is kind of where we're going with this is there's some sort of mystical property that when the baby's inside the womb, the baby is not a person and the baby can be killed. But once the baby is outside the womb, then the baby is a person and the baby cannot be killed. That's the magical birth canal dogma. There are lots of, you know, satirical videos about it saying, oh, look at the left and how they believe that, you know, there's some sort of magical property to the birth canal. But it's wrong. I'm sorry, it's wrong. That's not what the far left actually believes about abortion. People who believe in full-term abortion do not believe in the magical birth canal dogma. And I can prove it to you. You know how I prove it to you? The fact that they vote down bills exactly like this one, anti-infanticide bills. The fact that they vote down on state levels any protection for infants born after botched abortions. Do you know why? Do you know why? It's because abortion was never about bodily autonomy. It was never about a, a clump of cells being contained inside of the womb, inside of the woman. It's never been about physical autonomy. It has always been about the right to not be a biological parent. It has always been about the right to terminate your responsibilities as a biological parent. To say, no, no. 
I don't want my baby to be adopted out. I couldn't live with the idea that my baby is being raised by somebody else. To say, no, I can't raise a baby right now. It's too hard. I'm in school or I can't afford it or I'm about to get married or uh, my boyfriend will leave me or, 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 or. Abortion is the right to stop being a parent. So if you try an abortion and the abortion fails and that baby is born alive, to the left, it doesn't matter because it's always been about the right to a dead child. I don't know. I, ugh, it drives me nuts that people still don't understand that. And I feel like I am screaming into the void. And I say this all of the time. And it's like, uh, it's like I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm in a cone of silence or something. To me, this seems really obvious. And if, if you take issue with my argument here and you think that I'm getting this wrong, you should call and leave a voicemail at 323-999-1802 or text me. But abortion has always been about the right to a dead child. So it doesn't matter if the baby has exited the womb. That woman, according to pro-choice dogma, is still entitled to her choice. Wasn't ever about bodily autonomy. Shortly before the vote, Alexandra DeSantis, who um, writes and reports for National Review, Review about abortion, I read a lot of her stuff. She's very smart. I appreciate a lot of her work. But she said, if the born alive bill doesn't pass, you want to know why? Because we have a media that unflinchingly calls a newborn, quote, a fetus that was born, which is something that uh, a CNN reporter used in an article um, in a write-up released right after the vote happened. She says, media shapes opinion. People don't know what this bill does because no one tells them. Democrats get cover to filibuster common decency. No, this is wrong. And this is why I talk about people um, really understanding the ideology because that's part of being informed. It's not enough to just be informed about the, the facts of development inside the womb. And it seems like a lot of people operate that way within the pro-life movement, but it's not enough. Yes, media shapes public opinion. That quote-unquote fetus that was born phrased, phrase used by that CNN reporter, that's not evidence of ignorance. That is evidence of depravity. And I'm sure she knows, like, the, the reporter himself, she would probably say the same thing. But there are lots of people who are going to read that from CNN on the far left, and they're going to agree with that statement and are those people agreeing with that out of depravity or out of ignorance? Because she's acting like people who agree with that statement are acting out of ignorance. That's not what's happening. Remember when Chris Cuomo, um, like a year, a year and a half ago or something, maybe less than that, sometime last year, he was arguing with Rick Santorum um, on his show. And he said that the baby is... Um, that a baby inside the womb is, quote-unquote, not a life. And this other lady, Christine Quinn, who has a college degree, believe it or not, agreed with him. It is a not recognized no. under answer our law question. as a person no. under answer the law. Answer the question. No. You, you is know it what biologically the is. a human life? No. You know what the answer is. Listen, hold this on. This is so that is science. Not, there is no is, question. That is not, not reality, science. guys. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on a second. Let me just set the it table. It is true. Hold on a second. No, it's not. Calm down. It's not a belief. It's a fact. The it's only thing that no, can be created by two human beings is a human being, period. The law recognizes so a person with rights at a certain standard. So you see what I mean? 
He just lays it out there for everybody. It's a human being, but it's not a person. And the the personhood starts after the baby's born. But oh, 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 whoops. Oh, no. Oh, no. But that conflicts with my idea that a woman is entitled to the choice to not be a parent anymore. Darn. Based off of the evidence, which doctrine is winning at the moment? I would say, given that this bill has been voted down twice, it's the second one. Abortion is the right to a dead baby. Don't forget that. We're going to talk about what happened in Orlando in a second. But first, first, I am proud to let you know that this Top Story segment is sponsored by MyPillow. I have a MyPillow. It has replaced a memory foam pillow I thought couldn't be beat and that I have been using for a while. My MyPillow is that elusive combination of fluffy and supportive. It's lightweight and it doesn't trap heat under my face, which is very important. Keeping cool is essential for a good night's sleep year round. I never wake up with neck pain from my pillow being too low or too high. Mike Lindell, the inventor and CEO of MyPillow, wants to give the greatest night of sleep ever. You can get great discounts on all MyPillow products if you go to MyPillow.com right now and click on the listeners specials. Get deep discounts on MyPillow's mattress toppers, bed sheets, and so much more. Now for the 180 cast listeners, Mike is offering his best-selling offer of all time. The buy one, get one free offer today on the standard MyPillow plus free shipping. And in case you had not heard, MyPillow products come with a 10-year warranty. But MyPillow has just announced that they are extending their 60-day money-back guarantee. That's right. Orders placed between now and February 29th will have their 60-day money-back guarantee extended through May 1st, 2020. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza Sheets plus free shipping. Enter promo code 180CAST, that's 180-C-A-S-T, or call 800-506-2641 for these great specials. That's 800-506-2641. Use promo code 180CAST. In keeping with the theme of uh, violating the rights of children, I have possibly the worst Florida man meme ever, which is Florida man arrests six-year-old at her school for throwing a temper tantrum. This little girl named Kaya, she's a six-year-old black girl, was arrested in Orlando while at a charter school. She had thrown a temper tantrum where she had kicked and punched three school employees, according to the Tampa Bay Times. They had called the police on her. Weirdly, here's part of the audio. Brace yourself. Okay, she's going to have to come with us now. Okay, Kai, you got to go with them, baby girl. Stand up. Okay, come over here. What are those for? It's for you. Keep your hands, okay? Come over here, honey. <laughs> it's not gonna hurt. Hey, no! Okay, no, I want handcuffs on! No! Don't put handcuffs on! Help me! Help me! I'm not gonna make you listen to the rest of it. It's absolutely heartbreaking. Officer Dennis Turner, whose body cam footage the audio is from, arrested another six-year-old boy on the same day for a battery report in an unrelated incident. But that arrest was halted by superiors. Because, duh, you don't let a six-year-old get arrested. Kaya was this little black girl. 
crying and being put in the back of a police car with zip ties because the cuffs were too big for her was fully processed at the juvenile detention center. She had to get up on a step stool to have her mugshot taken. The Orlando Police Department said that Turner had violated department policy by arresting the children. However, it is important to note that there is no state law in Florida restricting the age at which someone can be arrested. I'm not playing this audio just to make your stomach turn, although obviously it is stomach turning, especially if you're a parent like I am. I am playing it for two reasons. One, when you watch the audio and you might be listening and you might be mad at what I'm about to say, but this is what went through my mind and I I have to be honest with you. When you watch the audio, when you watch this little girl being shoved into the back of a police car as she begs him, please, I want to stay in school. I don't want to go in the police car. Help me. I don't know. I don't know how you cannot look at the Black Lives Matter crowd and kind of see what they see, at least in this instance. And what they see is the legacy of slavery. Like, it, it, it's, it's just one of those things where she may as well have been bound in ropes and thrown into a wagon. Like, that's what went through my mind. Maybe I have an overactive imagination. And of course, I am responding very, very emotionally to watching this, this, um, this body cam footage, which I will link in the episode description. But, you know, I've been extremely vocal about my views on white privilege. I have wrote extensively against the idea of white privilege, white privilege theory. And I know that this guy, this Officer Turner, who's been fired, is probably just a bad apple. You know, I know that. He had been accused of racial profiling in the past and had arrested other children before this day. Only seven-year-olds, but, you know, he, he literally said it was a new record for him. That's literally what he said about this arrest of this poor little girl. But that's what went through my mind. And I think that when you watch the footage, if you have an open mind and you're not deeply shelled in your ideological bubble, that you could probably see that too. And I think maybe in a lot of cases, I would look at other situations in which the police have violated the rights of of people in their interactions with black citizens and see something similar and sort of you know, just for a minute there, be on the same wavelength as the people who are sort of on the other side of the aisle, these Black Lives Matter people who advocate for a lot of policies that I that I disagree with. Um, but I, I think, nevertheless, it's important to be honest about that. Um, anytime children are at risk, you know, I've got a problem. And I get that officers need some room for discretion, but children are sometimes caught up in these interactions even when they're not the the subject, even when they're not the person that the police were called on. You know, even when they're not the, the 12-year-old who has a toy gun in the park and, you know, is being shot at or something like that. You know, similar instances to that have happened. But there are children involved. They need They need protection, okay? And I think department policy is not enough in a lot of cases. And that 
police departments need to do a better job of of putting safeguards in place and and maybe state law, you know, state legislators putting safeguards in place to make sure that children are as protected from the the violence of the state, the force of the state, for instance, being zip tied and put in the back of a police car and processed at a juvenile detention center. They need well-considered, robust protections from abuse from other citizens and from the state. So right now there's no federal law saying that there's an age restriction on when somebody can be arrested, but maybe there should be something along those lines that has caveats, like, you know, for certain situations like like battery for, you know, kicking and punching somebody for something like that, you're not going to arrest a six-year-old. Maybe that should be codified into law because there are bad apples and it is the responsibility of legislators to make sure there are safeguards against people like that. Don't put your blinders on. Make sure kids are protected. That's all I'm asking for. Let's go ahead and check messages on the flip phone. I'd like to have an argument, please. I have a different interpretation. This message reads, Your conversation with Libby Emmons which was the last interview I did, was an important one. Her perspective and the way in which she puts it into words really resonated with me. I, too, sometimes feel like I'm in a no-man's land being pushed, pulled, and manipulated by both the Democrats and Republicans. I can and will have a thought of my own. Thanks to Libby for being an example of courage, love, and independent thought. Well, I am so glad that you enjoyed that episode. I thought it was thought-provoking as well, even more so when I went back to listen to it than when I was recording it. And there is, I mean, this whole area of being politically homeless is a, a hotbed of discussion right now. Discussion and all of the feels. <laughs> um you know, Brid- Bridget Phetasy, I think, is is probably the name that pops to mind who is most involved in this area of not having a political home and wanting to be an independent thinker. And I do see Lemon- Libby Emmons as, as somebody who is an ind- independent thinker and somebody who has organized her thoughts based off of her her values. And I think course now this is a perfect segue to go in to our interview highlights and we'll talk a little bit more about that we actually did a few one big change left the light bulb went on where it crystallized for me i just opened my eyes to change my mind completely episode 51 was of course with libby emmons she is a senior contributor at the federalist and she writes a ton for post-millennial and uh, a lot of other um a lot of other conservative-leaning publications. She's also a playwright, which is like, pfft, no big deal, but actually very important to her story. And um, her story is an interesting one. She grew up Catholic, and she grew up believing the social safety net was really important, and that that was instilled in her within her community and within her church and her family that you you care for the poor and you make sure that nobody gets left behind. You know, she grew up seeing the left as the most inclusive and welcoming and compassionate. And so that's sort of where she found her identity. She talked a little bit about how only more recently 
long after she exited university, did she sort of come to realize that uh, local governments are more uh, effective and more appropriate for making sure that people don't get left behind and that the federal government is is not really the place for this. And that was not a distinction that she made at all when she was on when she was on the left. And I, I asked her if she was sort of in a bubble because we talk about bubbles a lot. And um, I asked her whether she felt like she was in a, a bubble of the left or a, a liberal bubble. And she said it was more like a trajectory. But at the same time, you know, she kind of had blinders on. She didn't know what she didn't know about. And federalism was sort of one of those things that didn't even cross her radar. But the the thing about Libby and what I mentioned in the flip phone segment was she's sort of, she's, she has, she has an idea of what exactly she believes and she has sort of coherent thoughts around the role of the individual. And she talks a lot about that in the podcast and it, it expounds on that. So I won't go into too much detail, but she sort of has this boilerplate, boilerplate, um, boilerplate liberalism ideology. And that's something that actually not a lot of people like have people who are involved in politics you know you will still find that a lot but generally people do not have as fully formed an ideology as for instance i do or libby does or maybe you do because you're listening to this podcast you you know you might be a conservative like me for instance but that sort of sets the ground for how the left left her behind I don't want to give too much of this away because I think that her story is interesting, but it, it comes down to this idea here. Where I started to really notice that was with the transgender movement and um, this idea of like trans ideology. At a certain point, the idea was that for an individual to be themselves and to live as they chose, everybody else needed to change. And that was something that she couldn't get behind. So if you are familiar with Libby's writing, you know she writes a lot about transgenderism. And this was really the uh, turning point for her when it comes to her sort of leaving the identity on the left behind, even though she's more more of that old school liberal and still believes, you know, the government role in insurance welfare. It's very, very different from the left that we see today. And she began to realize in her theater community that she was being left behind. People were not on the same page as her. And she realized the danger of collectivism and of this push toward conformity that what if one person desires something, then everybody else needs to change instead of being able to have their own opinions, a thought of their own, and be able to dissent. But anyway, what, what really did it for her was this. I went to a meeting at a women's theater collective where like the first 15 minutes or something was all of us having to go around and say our pronouns. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm going to throw up. Like we're already at a meeting. Isn't that bad enough? Now we have to waste time. We're all, we're all women. We're just all women sitting here. Like, who are we performing for? What is this about? Like, are we just trying to like, uh, you know, put our thought process in a certain way so that we always think this first? And if so, like, why? I do not want to waste my time modifying my identity because I am told that I must. A lot of people in a similar circumstance who 
aren't as grounded in their own value system, I think would definitely go along with that. And that's something to take note of because, like I said, most people are not fully grounded in a value system. They're sort of a little bit wishy-washy. They lean one way or another. They hold some uh, opinions that are contradictory to one another. And you can see this in polling all of the time. It's really quite remarkable. But, you know, Libby was able to sort of walk away and realize that that wasn't something she was going to be involved in um, and to sort of more more or less actually be okay with being ostracized because they weren't going to let her be who she wanted to be and be herself and be independent in that situation. But she was okay being ostracized instead of going along to get along because she has this foundation, this belief in individual sovereignty. And so this whole idea of, of pronouns and uh, modifying your identity, uh, your, your identifier with cis or trans, she, she, she couldn't, she couldn't get behind that. And she doesn't feel like she said in the podcast that she, changed significantly, although when you read her writing, it does come across as pretty darn conservative, but, you know, rather she, it's it's the political and cultural landscape around her that's changed. And so many people who have come into the walk away movement founded by Brandon Strzok, who is another person I have interviewed on this podcast, who uh, was a Democrat, grew up Democrat, and, and then became a Republican, very interesting episode. I will link that in the description box as well. But, you know, a lot of the people in that movement, if you listen to their testimonies, it's very similar. It's like, um, this party changed. And, uh, I, now that I've researched more about it, that's not really what I believe. So I'm going to leave. And it's an interesting question that we discuss toward the end of the podcast about why people who hold beliefs that differ significantly from the party platform continue to stay in the party. And I will leave that discussion in the actual episode, which is episode 51, Left Behind by the Left, A Playwright's Tragedy, is a title that I am very proud of, by the way. When I come back in a minute, we are going to get into the woke of the week, which I know that you have been waiting for. My pronouns right. are she, her, and hers. Mine too. Y'all about to get woke. You know how sometimes we exaggerate the positions of the other side in an argument and we're very hyperbolic and this is just something that we do when we're trying to prove a point and being a pundit? Well, some people are actually beyond hyperbole. So... Let me set the stage here. Bernie Sanders tweeted a couple days ago. He tweeted this. What would free quality childcare and pre-K mean for you and your family? Okay, first off, before we get to the actual tweet I'm talking about, free and quality are not words that go together. I heard this. I don't remember where I heard this, but it's like a business saying. You can have it fast or cheap or well-made. Pick two. And that definitely applies to anything that's run by the government. But anyway, 
So in, in response to Bernie's tweet, Liz Wheeler, who is a uh, host of, she's the host of a show called Tipping Point on One America News Network. She's pretty cool. Um, she posted a comment that uh, government daycare would mean government indoctrination of the next generation, brainwashing babies and toddlers with your socialist communist ideology as you praised Fidel Castro for doing in Cuba. Yes, he did praise Fidel Fidel Castro for his literacy program in a 60 Minutes interview not that long ago. And she said, what's worse, you would force us to pay for it. No thanks. So, you know, forceful, as you usually see on Twitter. Well, this blue check mark named Armani, there's no first name there, and I'm not exactly sure which Armani it is, but he's a blue check, so he's super important, guys, and he knows what he's talking about. He writes, Why do white women who look like they sport bumpets always have the worst takes when it comes to anything political? Whenever someone mentions quality care for children less fortunate, these people are quick to shut it down with lies. Just say you hate poor people and move it along. Well... He certainly showed Liz Wheeler what's what. Well, okay, this is this is super woke, right? But it's also super sexist, which is something that is more common than you might think. And by the way, if you don't know what a bump it is, it's like this comb headband thing that you sort of put towards the back of your head. And it sort of lifts up your hair a little bit. So it's like taller in the back, kind of almost like a 60s sort of hairdo. Um, Liz Wheeler has super bomb hair, but that's beside the point. Except for this guy who thinks that that's just totally fair game to trash somebody's hairdo. Because, you know, she's a white woman. Jeez. But, yeah, you know, it it's beyond hyperbole, right? Because sometimes you'll say... Oh, you just think that conservatives hate poor people. And you just think that we don't care about quality care for children who are less fortunate. And then somebody toward the left will be like, no, 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 I didn't say that. And then they'll say something else that's not quite that bad. But this guy, you know what? He goes right for it and he says exactly what he thinks. And it's good to know. It's good to know that sometimes we're not really exaggerating, sometimes we're hitting the nail exactly on the head. Just say you hate poor people and move along. Okay, so, well, let, let's, let's, prove, let's prove him wrong. This is a teachable moment here, teachable moment. Actually, we have some pretty good reasons to reject government daycare, whether you have amazing hair or you have less amazing hair like I do, to reject government daycare and universal pre-K. Indoctrination is just one of them. There was this great article written by Katya Sedgwick, who I also have interviewed on this podcast a month or two ago uh, about her uh, journey to becoming pro-life. She um, migrated here from Soviet Russia, and she has an article called... um, Communist Cuba may claim 99% literacy, but it still imprisons poets. She writes, Even true to his pro-Soviet Cold War persona, Democrat presidential candidate Bernie Sanders recently created a stir by insisting communist dictator Fidel Castro's Cuba had an excellent literacy program. In In a 60 Minutes interview with Anderson Cooper on Sunday, aforementioned, Sanders said, 
We are very opposed to the authoritarian nature of Cuba, but you know, it's unfair to simply say everything is bad, you know? When Fidel Castro came into office, you know what he did? He had a massive literacy program. Is that a bad thing, even though Fidel Castro did it? Well, this is very, this is very interesting. So Katya's article basically goes through and details with evidence the fact that literacy programs were not about educating the public. Literacy programs were about making sure people could read so they could consume all of the communist propaganda. That's not an exaggeration. That's actually true. She writes, why communist dictatorships are so fond of literacy is a whole different matter. Political commentator Anna Navarro tweeted, I was in second grade when Sandinistas came to power in Nicaragua. They adopted Cuban education model. The book's curriculum taught ideological indoctrination. Children had to recite communist, revolutionary, anti-American slogans. That's how communists teach people to read and write. She also puts this in from a Polish-British academic whose name I can't pronounce. Literacy was always the most basic tool of totalitarian propaganda. If you are not literate, you can't be fed communist propaganda. The most steadfast anti-communist I knew in my childhood was my maternal grandfather, who was illiterate. Communist propaganda did not reach him at all. The more one read, the more one was subject to indoctrination, which is something which, of course, I experienced myself. For this reason, achieving literacy is always the first aim of com communist regimes. Elementary. Katya goes on to say that in Soviet Russia, the state tightly controlled pub publishing houses. Um, you know, wrong think was obviously not allowed and that there were essentially self-published books that were not communist propaganda that were circulated among some 200,000 people um, that were sort of under the books. And if you were caught with it, you could literally be put in a imprisoned in a psychiatric institution. It was a big deal. Literacy was not about making sure the public could read and read whatever they wanted. Literacy was about making sure the public consumed all of the propaganda necessary to keep them in check and to keep them complacent. Uh, but of course, as, as, Katya writes, it was sort of a double-edged sword. There's this proverb that she puts here saying that uh, what is written with the pen can't be chopped with an axe. And that was taken to heart by a lot of dissidents. It's a very interesting article. I encourage you to read it. I am listening, listing it in my resources in the episode description. Back to Bernie's daycare plan. He wants at least 10 hours of free government care for children five days a week. So almost fully institutionalizing children, more than children get normally in public school and starting from basically three years old. Who can really be said in that circumstance to be raising your kids at that point? You or the government? Who's doing most of the education portion or essentially all of the education portion? You or the government? It's the state, right? Do you think that Bernie wants universal pre-K just out of the goodness of his heart? Because he really only wants to make sure, only wants to make sure that kids get a head start, even though the 
most um, rigorous studies and the most recent studies say that Head Start programs, even the quote unquote, you know, even the best ones do not provide long-term positive effects for kids. Do you think that it's just because he just really wants everybody to have a stellar education and he really just wants um, parents to be able to go to work and not have to worry about paying for daycare, even though, of course, they're going to be paying for it with their taxes? No, it's because he wants to be able to mold the brains of the next generation starting at a very young age. A federal program means federal rules. A federal program essentially means federal, federally dic- dictated curriculum. Who do you think is going to be in charge of that curriculum? Conservatives? Libertarians? Christians? Mormons? No. It'll be secular leftists who are going to teach secular left ideology to our children. I mean, do you think, really, Fidel Castro, it was out of the goodness of his own heart that he started a literacy program. He just really wanted what was best for the, the, the impoverished people of his country. I mean, considering how tolerant he was of dissent, right? He locked up dissidents. He imprisoned political opponents. Give me a break. Obviously, when you put things in context, this was not an altruistic enterprise. But the sexist Bernie bro woke scolds out there, you know, they don't, they probably don't know any of this. They're probably not that well educated on the history of communism and socialism. And so they're just comfortable making snide remarks about people's hairdos and making snide remarks about people's skin color because that's what wokeness does for you. You don't have to be woke to the fact that Collectivist ideologies, including socialism and communism, were responsible for the deaths of nearly a hundred million people in the 20th century. No, you don't, you don't really have to know about that. That's not really relevant to this discussion of whether we're going to have universal healthcare and universal daycare and universal dental care and taxes on the wealthy. Not relevant at all. Right. It should be obvious, but the more educated you are on these things, I'm pretty sure Liz Wheeler is, the less likely you are to be deterred by bullies like Armani the blue checkmark. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much again for joining me on the 180 cast. We will be back next Friday, Lord willing, with another interview episode of somebody who has changed their mind. Please, if you have thoughts on the podcast, do not forget that you can call and leave a voicemail or text. I promise you, okay, the phone does not bite. You can leave a voicemail. I know that texting is convenient, but there is something about hearing your voice as a listener that is very special to me and it's special to the other people who are listening to this podcast as well. And I just really like hearing from you. The texts are awesome and everything, but I like hearing your voice as well. So please do not be shy. That's 323-999-1802. And that number, of course, is in the episode description. Please give the podcast a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a moment. I would really appreciate it and thank you in advance if you do. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. In the middle of struggle, 
Executive producer Kevin McCullough. Music by Ruthie Kraft. Who I am, what I need, who I've got to be.